you hear us through your AirPods or see us on your laptop, how about meeting us in real life? Because we're taking Queer Money on the road this summer and fall. Visit QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player to find out when we'll be in your neighborhood. This podcast is sponsored by Mass Mutual. Every way we look out for the ones we love is an act of mutuality. Mass Mutual can help with the financial ones. There's personal finance for the masses. This is not personal finance for the masses. This is Queer Money. David and I are lucky. We have some of the best business partners. Last year, we were at a conference in Dallas, and we had dinner with our colleagues from Experian. During that delicious dinner that had some fabulous wine, David and I shared that financial data in the queer community was pretty sparse and often contradictory. Yes, companies such as Mass Mutual and Prudential have done some great studies about our community and our finances. Information from the Human Rights Campaign and the Williams Institute is helpful. But for us, these created more questions about our community than answers sometimes. That's why we were excited when Experian reached out to us and said they wanted to do a money study of the queer community and asked if we'd help. We said, hell yeah. And by June, we had an exhaustive study that showed answers for many of our most pressing questions. We'll link to the Experian study in the show notes. We'll also link to an Experian credit chat that we did with them in June. Today, however, we're hosting Kerry Roberts, Experian's social media manager. Kerry is also a gay man, and we thought we'd use the findings from Experience Study as a springboard to tell each of our personal financial stories as gay men. Kerry's experiences are very similar to mine and David's, but his story about being on the Susie Orman show is amazing. You don't want to miss it. You're going to love this personal queer money. If you like this episode, please take a screenshot on your phone of this episode, share it on Instagram, along with your favorite point or quote, and tag at Queer Money Podcast. Let's get started. So welcome to this show, Experience Social Editor, Carrie Roberts. We appreciate having you. Thanks for having me, guys. So great to be here. Exactly. And you like just touched down from Croatia, didn't you? You're just returning. I did. I did. I just touched down just late last week and um, trying to get back on time. And But it was a great time away and great weather, great people. We had so much fun. Nice. And now we can talk about being a gay man and having a lot of debt. <laughs> <laughs> yes, after my gay vacation, absolutely. <laughs> right. Exactly. So just to give our listeners a little bit of context, about a year ago, David and I were at a conference that we go to every year called FinCon, and we were talking with the Experian folks about how there's a dearth of data about LGBT people and how we spend our money and how we feel financially. And nicely enough, a few months ago, maybe three or four months ago, Experian reached out to us and said, hey, can we help create a survey? And we kind of collaborated on creating a survey. And they brought back so much information that David and I are going to be able to get mired in this data for years. And it's super helpful and it provides us a lot of content so that we can help our community. So we did a credit chat with Experian in June for the month of Pride. But we wanted Carrie to come on to our show to kind of talk about the stories behind the data. So as three gay men, if you don't know, David and I are gay. <laughs> what? <laughs> and so is Carrie. We're going to talk about the numbers behind the data, put some personal stories behind the numbers. And this is going to kind of go out to all three of us. So I'd like to this be sort of more conversational, maybe more so than normal. But let's start off with sharing our money stories, our experiences with that. Carrie, did you want to kick us off? Sure, sure. You know, it kind of, you know, went on in two different times of my life. But I think the earliest in the beginning, I think for me, was just kind of when I was fresh almost out of college. And I think that's when I had like my first credit card then. And I just really got into the 
oh my gosh, this is like free money. I'm just swiping this card, not really knowing too much about, you know, the repercussions if I don't handle this in, in the right way. And I think in that moment too, is, you know, when I met a lot of, you know, great friends and wanted to do a lot of fun activities and I found myself just kind of saying like, I'm just going to put it on my credit card. Like, you know what I mean? We're going to have a good time and I'll even put gas in your car and we'll go or do whatever. And so just not thinking I need to pay this balance. And so it was kind of like a free money situation, I think for me back then. And then I racked up a lot of credit card debt. And I remember getting to the point where thinking I can barely even make this minimum payment for some of these cards. You think about like back when you're really young and maybe having a student credit card back in those days, the interest rate was astronomical. It was very high, maybe like close to 30% or something like that. And so just even with the minimum payment on like a large balance of like $3,500 would still be a decent, you know, the minimum payment every month. And so I just found myself where I was spending, spending, spending and racking up more credit card debt and not even really working that much. It was even a point where I didn't even have a job right after I graduated from college. And I actually lost my job because I could not get to work on time because I was partying so much. <laughs> um, but <laughs> And so I took the summer off and I graduated. I had one more class to take and then I was like, okay, fine. I'm just going to, you know, just do this. And I remember going on trips with my friends even. And I was kind of just living on this credit and also like the bank of my parents, you know. And then I got into debt and it was crazy. And I remember like all my late notices. I remember my first collection notices even back then. And when I started to get into the workforce, that was when I was like, okay, now maybe I can like pay some bills. But by then it was kind of a mess, you know, it was kind of a mess already. So yeah, years of debt racked up by then. Mm -hmm, exactly. Because I was still kind of even on that same mentality of like spending. And I think just getting that instant gratification of being able to either buy material things or just being able to go out and do things, you know, with my friends and just saying like, I'll take care of it. Like I'll get the bill. Like we would go out for drinks and I would just do it for everybody. And I would just put my card down as if, you know, I was just like trust fund kid or something. Yeah. And then all of a sudden it was tons and tons of credit card debt. And I was so young. I was in my early twenties, you know, and, and hadn't even had like my real job yet. I feel like all I worked was maybe retail. And then I got my first job at the bank. And then that's when I was like, Oh wow, what have I done to myself? Right. You know, Carrie, I have to call out what you were saying there, this idea of paying for everyone, because I personally, I used to do the same thing. I went to college later, but we would go out and I was buying the drinks. I was always paying for the cabs. I was always paying for everything. And I think I had this mentality in my head is this is me being a good person, right? I'm being generous. I'm helping everyone. What was very interesting is it wasn't until years later when I was actually in therapy for something else, <laughs> that I started to recognize that it was me feeling inferior and maybe having a lack of self-worth that I didn't think that people would like me unless I did these good things for them. And part of that was it really kind of came down to this idea that I was, I was trying to buy my friends, which I think it's so easy for us to get kind of confused with this idea of being generous and being a good person and actually being financially irresponsible because of some sort of maybe lack of self-worth. Gosh, I mean, I feel like that's exactly 100% how I felt, especially for me. I feel, you know, in my early college times, I think too, is when I didn't have a lot of gay friends. And so I felt even too that I had to win these people over before I can even really share about who I am. Because in that way, if they maybe did have an issue, it really wouldn't be an issue because it's like, oh, but he has so much fun and we go and have drinks and he does all this for all of us. And so I'm thinking it'd be fine. It was my way to kind of maybe 
pre get them ready to be like, Oh, and I'm gay. (laughs) 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 It's like, Oh, we love you. But you know what I mean? And so that's what I felt like I was trying to win people over in that way, just because I wasn't sure that they would really love me for who I really am. So David, do you think there's an element of that in your story that you thought that you need to sort of prime them, your friends before you kind of came out to them? Many of you who are listening have heard a little bit of our backstories. If you've listened to some of the older podcasts, but For me, credit card debt started when I was 19. My parents sent me, here's my privileged white middle-class upbringing. I went to Ireland and England for a three-week vacation. And my parents gave me a credit card as a safety net in case something happened for emergencies. And of course, everyone knows how the story goes. There were no emergencies, but I came back with a credit card that was nearly maxed out. Now, granted, that was only $500, but it wasn't too long after that, that I then went out on my own. And I just, similar to what Carrie said, I just kind of looked at this revolving credit as free money. And of course, as I made my regular monthly payments, they just kept on increasing my credit limit. And so that $500 over the years grew. I do remember that after I had moved back home to Denver, I had moved away for a while and moved back home to Denver, And I got a full-time job because I hadn't been working full-time before that. I do remember paying my credit card debt down, not completely off, but paid it down significantly. And part of the triggering reason behind that was the guy I was dating at the time, he basically one afternoon was gone for a while and I kind of didn't understand where he was at or what he had been doing. We had worked together and it took him a little while later, but he told me that he had just gone and declared bankruptcy because when he graduated college, he furnished his whole apartment, bought a car, and created a lifestyle that he had done all of that on credit cards. And when he told me that he had declared bankruptcy to get rid of the debt for all that stuff, it shocked me a little bit. Not enough, because then it was probably within five years that I had close to $20,000 in credit card debt. And I do think that a lot of it, similar to Carrie, is it was this kind of I guess, unconscious need to have a lifestyle that I thought I deserved. I felt like I should get these things. I've worked hard. Now, granted, I was, what, maybe 28, 29 years old, close to 30. And I kind of had this feeling, I deserve this great life. I work full time, but I hadn't earned the lifestyle that I was trying to create. I think that there were a number of reasons, as I mentioned, some lack of self-worth, some desire to be a part of a community. And I didn't want people to reject me because I didn't look as fabulous as everybody else. <laughs> so, <laughs> Yeah, I think for me, definitely the common thread for me with acquiring, I guess mine was about $20,000 worth of that debt. Yeah, 32000 30, <laughs> Was mostly seeking validation. And I think it was a combination of making up for lost time, not being able to be my true self when I was growing up. But then also, like it sounds like similar to your stories, where I wanted to make sure I fit into my new community, whether they were LGBTQ or straight, I wanted to make sure that you know I was validated in their eyes. So it does seem that there's a common thread amongst all of our stories that we do feel to some degree that our LGBTQ status influenced our decision making. Absolutely. I agree 100%. I think even more so, I think once I was you know, out and moved. I moved, you know, I grew up in Orange County here in Southern California and I moved to LA and and going out in West Hollywood and Hollywood and seeing these people and I'm thinking, wow, this is, you know, such a different life. Not to say that, you know, Orange County is bad and Orange County is a very, you know, kind of an affluent area, but I felt like once I even fully submerged myself into the community is when I even got even more debt. And that's when I was like, I need to buy a Mercedes. I need to do this. And so I can, you know, at least 
act as if I'm this fabulous person that's living this great LA life. Yeah. Actually, Carrie, do you mind if I ask a little bit of a more personal question? Sure. Um, so you're African-American, right? So yes. you're an African-American man who's gay. So that's kind of a double whammy mm-hmm. when it comes to... I say to, it all the time. <laughs> right. So do you think that the intersection of being African-American and being gay had a greater impact on your need to maybe feel <laughs> fabulous? <laughs> I think so. You know, it's funny. I never thought about it. And I kind of think so. Yes, because especially I feel like even being the minority, even growing up in Orange County and, you know, living in this area. And so I feel like also trying to, you know, live this fabulous gay lifestyle, but also to think, am I up to this like status of people who are maybe always perceived as having money or like having this like white privilege kind of a thing. But yeah, and I think that maybe played a little bit of part in it and maybe thinking like, oh, well, you know, like, look at me, like I'm this black guy and I have all of this, you know, too. Yeah, right. And, you know, I'm up here and I'm living this great life and we're at this great club and we have bottle service right now and everything's good. <laughs> and I drive a Mercedes. <laughs> right. So everything's perfect. So I think it's mm-hmm. got to be even more difficult for the LGBTQ people who live in LA because that's kind of like where all of our information is coming from in TV and movies of what a fabulous gay life looks like. You have all these amazing things. You have this amazing life. I imagine that if you're living in the culture that's creating that imagery that we're all sort of feeding off of, it's got to be even harder. Oh, absolutely. I agree a hundred percent. And I think it's even to the point where it could even get where, yes, okay, maybe you have a BMW too, but yours is like this basic version. You know what I mean? And mine is fully loaded or this, but I think you can definitely walk up and down the streets and say like, everybody has this car, everybody has this. And you know, we're all at a bar right now. And so is this is the norm to live here. We should all be at the same level. Or at least, you know, fake the funk like how I was doing. Right. Why don't we talk about coming to some of the mistakes that we that we did that got us there, or maybe call out some of those mistakes. I think it's it's very easy for us to speak in generalities, but some of the mistakes might resonate with some of you because you may have made some of these mistakes too. Because we definitely know that the majority of the debt free guys community have said to us that one of their biggest issues is paying off their debt, and so sometimes it's good to recognize where we came from or what caused that. So. So I think for you and me, probably our most tragic (laughs) mistake was... I'm going to let you speak for yourself because I've got a story. (laughs) (laughs) So there was a one Wednesday or Thursday night, David and I were hanging out at a local sports bar with some of our friends. It was definitely a school night. And it turned around 10 or 11. We probably should have been in bed by then, but we weren't. And somebody said, oh, we should go to tracks. Big Danks Club in Denver. A big gay club in Denver. And for some reason, all 10 or 11 of us thought that was a brilliant idea on a school night. My biggest concern, though, is that David and I were out and about all day long. I had a t-shirt on, shorts, and flip-flops. And I said, I can't go to a dance club looking like this. And David said, well, you know, diesel closes in about a half an hour, so you need to decide whether or not we're doing this. And I said, yes. And so David and I ran out to the car. We drove down the street. I think he blew through two or three red lights. We got to the Cherry Creek Mall, and I ran into the diesel store. And talk about validation. I had gone there so often and spent so much money that I didn't even have that I could walk in there and point to the shirt and the shoes and the jeans or pants that I wanted. And the people who worked there knew my size. Ran in there, pointed out everything I wanted. They gave it to me. I got dressed. And then we went to the club that night and then spent even more money dancing and drinking and buying cocktails. Right. I do remember that story. And it was <laughs> what is so amazing about that is, again, it's all this whole idea that I have to have this perception of being amazing and fabulous. And you, you mentioned the idea of it being validating. 
And I think that night you spent over $500 on clothes just so you could go out and look good at a club. <laughs> right. And at the time we were renting a basement apartment because that's all we could afford. So I don't think I needed fancy designer jeans that night, but right. we did it anyway. So that was probably, <laughs> right. I'll say that's probably one of my most funnier Egregious. mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> Carrie, how about you? Do you have a, either a particular story or maybe a mindset? You know, it's so funny. I'm just going to say, though, about the diesel jeans. I feel like that was what I used to spend a lot of my money on. They were like the only premium kind of men denim, I think, you know, initially from, you know, a while back. And I loved all of their clothes. I was just thinking about it. I was like, man, I spent a lot of money at But diesel. they made your butt look so good. <laughs> yeah. There was one in here. It was in Orange County. They would have these great kind of like after kind of like parties where they'd have like cocktails and you can like do clothes and it was so great and that was a good time even though i spent tons of money there and probably one of the credit cards that i maxed out i went to collection definitely was spent at diesel but i think you know one of the biggest i feel like mistakes is when i remember getting my real estate license after i moved to la and i was just like oh maybe i want to do real estate and i used that to justify me buying my first mercedes Oh. And I was like, okay, I have to do this. And so this was already after I'd already like tanked my credit with all, you know, these student credit cards. And so I literally had to go to like some random corner lot place, this, you know, dealership that's not even like a regular dealership. It was like in some random, it wasn't even in my same city. It was like a little outside of LA. And I remember going there and I had my other car and I was thinking, oh, maybe I can trade my car in. And then I go and I somehow get into this. I don't even know how many years old this car was. It had maybe it had already been maybe like six years old or something. I somehow got this Mercedes. And I remember thinking like, oh my gosh, this is like so great. And I came home. I bet you the interest rate on that loan was probably 20 something percent. Yeah. Because my payment was like so high. I was working full time at the bank then and living with a roommate in LA. And I remember coming home and I was just like, couldn't wait to like show it off. And my roommate's like, oh my God, like, how are you affording this? <laughs> Uh, and I'm like, oh, well, you know, it's good. And But I lied to all of them and said that I got it at Mercedes dealership in Beverly Hills, like in L.A. And I was like, this is where I went to go get it. But that wasn't the truth at all. It was just a lot. Luckily, the car didn't fall apart on me. It lasted a little bit of time at least. But yeah, I just remember thinking like, what was I doing? I can't imagine, you know, I was trying to justify it just by saying like, oh, well, if I'm going to be a real estate agent in L.A., I'm going to have this nice car too. So it was, you know, my first of a few that I had Mercedes actually. And then I was just like, I'll do anything to get this car. And even if I am paying almost 30% interest on the car loan and having this crazy payment on nothing. Right. That was probably one of those car lots that always had the signs that said low credit, no credit, no problem kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was one of those, like I said, I don't know how they found this loan and how it happened. I was just like, here, sign it. And I was done. I didn't know what I was doing. And I think it was the first car that I ever bought on my own because my parents had bought my cars, you know, before. So it was my first time saying like, oh, I'm going to do this all by myself and look at me getting my own bins. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. I think we see a little bit of a common theme. We have stories here where we're trying to impress people. And I will admit that I was never a big spender. I never bought big ticket items. But on one occasion, John and I went out to a club. It was a going away party for somebody. And he was very attractive and very popular in the gay community. It was probably about one o'clock in the morning. And they had had bottle service and we were all sitting there and the alcohol was gone. And I know that I couldn't afford it, but I ordered a $180 bottle of Stoli. 
Now, many of you know that a 750 ml of Stoli at the local store probably costs about $22, uh-huh. $25, right? I spent 180 bucks because I wanted to try to impress this guy. I was dating John, but I was still trying to impress this guy and try to impress his friends. And, you know, just looking back on it, how stupid it was. I will admit, though, <laughs> that the cheap ass in me, because we didn't finish it before the club closed, took that bottle and put it down my pants and took it out the door because there was like maybe a third of it left. I'm like, I paid $60 for that, that alcohol. I'm taking it with me. That's after I was club drinking. <laughs> for sure. Right. But again, it wasn't because I absolutely had to. This wasn't a desperate or emergency situation. One of the interesting things is We just did a poll in the Queer Money Facebook group asking the question, what's the most common reason you spend on a credit card? The number one reason was to get reward points. And the number two reason was to buy things that I want. Number three was then necessities because you're actually in a financial emergency. You have to have food or clothing because you can't really afford that. Even though the vast majority of people in the group say that credit card debt is their problem, it seems like we're spending that money to get some sort of either additional reward or some sort of validation. That's so true. I think it's a common thing, you know, with all of us. And I, I can say the same thing. I, I feel like, of course, you'd always kind of want points. That's what I always think about if I'm ever going to swipe my card and thinking, okay, even though I'm going to make a payment as soon as I walk out of the store, just because I'm crazy like that, but I want to get the points. But yeah, I can totally understand that. And I, I feel that relates definitely to me too. Yeah. Here's a quick word from our sponsor. If, like us, you're getting to a time in your life when you're starting to think about the financial ways of protecting your loved ones, Mass Mutual is there to help. Now let's get back to the show. I think another common thread that I'm seeing is, at the time, Carrie, you were in banking, and David and I were both working at brokerage firms, or you were at a mutual fund company for a while, David. Mm-hmm. So we were all in financial services in some way, and we were supposedly the experts in money, helping other people balance their checkbooks and pay their bills and invest their money. Yet here we were all living well beyond our means um, and putting all that on high interest rate credit cards and loans. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? I know I'm going to say I would talk to people every day and they were like, I have overdraft fees or I have things that are returned or anything like that. And I would see my own account all the time. I feel like I started caring a little bit more about my money when I was working for the bank. However, my spending habits weren't really changing. I was just looking at what was maybe going in and I'm like, okay, it's time to go shop. Right. (laughs) Yeah. I can always pay this off. Right. 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 Oh, I make X amount of dollars. I make $60,000. I make $80,000 or whatever the amount is. And you have this mentality of, oh, I'll always be able to pay this off. Right. (laughs) And that's exactly what the card companies and the banks, they rely on this idea of you having this in the back of your head. You're going to say, you're always going to pay this off. So you don't mind having that five thousand, ten thousand, twenty five thousand dollars just riding on your card forever. They're making fifteen, twenty, twenty-five percent off of that and you're ruining your financial future. <laughs> we are exactly. we are ruining our financial futures. Yes, we are. <laughs> yeah. And you know what's interesting is looking at some of that data that came out of the study there is the things that we're talking about right now are the exact same thing that people in our community say that they typically overspend on. They typically overspend on things like travel, dining out, clothing, entertainment. It's not that they're spending all this extra money on the things that are necessary. 
you know, of course, food is necessary, but dining out isn't necessary. And we all fell into that trap. We so, did. We so, did, all of us. Carrie um, has a unique claim to fame. <laughs> He's kind of a celebrity, so to speak. So you were a guest or maybe the target <laughs> of Susie Orman on her Susie Orman show? I was. Right before she went off the air, actually, it was her last season. You know, I'd already gotten out of debt once on one of my bad credit card debt when I was really younger in my 20s. And I remember even having like a garnishment on my check because one took me to court, had a judgment, everything. It was nuts. I managed to pay everything down, get everything done and living very well for a long time. And then I was in a relationship. I got out of that relationship. And after that, I kind of had to afford this life because I had a great life with this partner that I was with and we lived in a beautiful place. He kind of won me over, I think, a little bit with a lot of extravagant things, even though that's not one of my love languages, gifts and things like that is not one of my love languages, but I just kind of played into it. And so we had this lifestyle and I felt like my mentality started to change back to how it was when I was younger, when I was living in LA. Because at this point, I wasn't living in LA anymore. So when I was single, trying to get back on life, I have great credit. So I got all these credit cards. Again, new credit cards. I already had so many of them at this point. I probably, I got so many. I maybe had like 15 credit cards, something oh, nuts. Wow. We lived together. We moved out, separated. I got my own place and I needed to furnish it. We, you know, bought a lot of furniture together. So I had some things that we kind of split when we broke up. But I was like, oh, I need to buy this. I need to do this. This needs to look as good as how it was when I was with this person. And so I got into crazy debt again. And I was like, here I am. I can't believe this is happening to me again. And at this point, you know, I felt like I should know better. I've already been to this experience once, you know, maybe like 10 years or so before. And here I am doing this all over again. And so I watched Susie Orman religiously. Like I would even give her books out to some of my friends, like the young broken fabulous. I'm like, read this. You're going to love her. Like, you know, and I watched her show. And so I got to the point where I was still being able to maintain and to pay all my bills. But I kind of thought like, okay, like, I don't know how to get out of this. Like, I don't know what to do. And I was like, I'm going to write Susie Orman just to see if they can give me some advice, you know, and the producers called me quick. I literally feel like I sent an email and they called me within like two days wow. and I had a phone interview. And then they said, we're sending a field producer to your house next week. Oh, scary. Oh, you did the whole thing. You weren't just on <laughs> yes. the phone, huh? Right. Oh, no. So then the field producer shows up to my house with a film crew. They film me at my house. We do this whole like segment at home. I talk about my experience, how I got into debt. And they had me drive around in my then current Mercedes that I had after when I was able to actually get a car on my own at a regular interest rate. And they had me to, you know, do all this. And so they put GoPros in my car anyways. So I shot that segment. And then maybe two weeks later, I did the in-studio with Susie. Wow. And she basically was like, you don't have a pot to piss in. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and my friends always saw that line back at me all the time. They're always like, you don't have a pot to piss in. <laughs> Susie told me. And she was like, you're pulling up next to people in your Mercedes Benz thinking you have more money than the person next to you in a regular car. And you don't have a pot to piss in. And I was like, oh. <laughs> I was like, I, she's calling me out. I'm shook right now. Right. You like this. came out of the financial closet on TV. <laughs> yes, I did. I mean, and you know, at that point, and I was just like, oh my gosh. And she was like, you need to pay more money. And I remember at that point too, I was even to the point where I was going to start taking out like 401k loans to pay down some of my debt because I had maxed all these cards out then. And I even got a personal loan to consolidate. And what I did was I got the loan and then I just basically still used the cards. 
Oh yeah. And you just went back up into debt. And I learned so much in consumer credit counseling when I was going through the first time when I was young and I was like, why am I not applying this? And I was just kind of back in this thing of saying like, I still need to keep this lifestyle up. And so I went on Susie and she told me basically like you're riding right now, but you're going to crash. You're going to crash and you need to make some changes. You need to make more money and you need to you know do this. And so I, I had to. And then at that point I was like, okay, so now everybody's going to know. Cause she talked about that too, how I was, I didn't want to be maybe truthful with, you know, everyone about my situation. And so she's now you're going to have to, cause it's going to go on TV, obviously. <laughs> and I didn't tell people for a long time. Like I filmed this thing maybe, you know, late one year and maybe four months later is when it aired on TV. And literally I got called out kind of by a friend who called me and was like, Hey, we have some friends out of state in Texas that said they just saw you on Susie Orman. <laughs> and then my cousin called me. And people started calling me and they were like, oh, my God, we saw you on Susie. And I was like, oh, my gosh. But it was positive in the sense that they were saying, you're so brave that you did this. Yeah. <laughs> and that right? you did it. Yeah, because I was like, well, I felt like I had no choice. Now I'm like, oh, my gosh, you know, I didn't know what to do. And I was seeking this advice, but it was scary. And I felt it was almost like coming out of the closet again. And I felt like now I'm coming out to everyone, my family, all my friends, everyone's going to say like, oh, what? You mean you were having, you know, money problems, financial issues? Who knew when you're whipping around in your white Mercedes? Right. Again. Right. Yeah. Right. So let you me know. ask you, the first time that you got out of debt about 10 years prior or so, did your friends and family know to any degree? No. My mom and my dad kind of knew yes, because I got to the point where, especially when I remember I was getting all these letters from these attorneys and I'm thinking, you know, I don't know what the heck this is even about. And then they sent me these things to go to court and I didn't show up for anything. And then when the judgment happened and I thought still nothing, I thought I just got away from this debt. And at that point, it had been years, you know, since the debt had charged off, but they were still coming after me. Uh And then I remember working at the bank and my check. They took money. It was like garnishment. Yep. And that department sat right across from where ours was. And I'm thinking like, oh my gosh, like they probably know who I am. <laughs> and they just put they just put a garnishment on my bank account, which is with the same bank where I work. Oh. And I remember calling my mom thinking like, oh my gosh, the can this just happen? And I mean, at that point, I think I could have survived one month. I had money in my savings to pay. I called my parents. I'm like, I don't know what to do. And then they helped me out a little bit just to get kind of like back on track. But I was like, okay, I need to pay these people back. I need to get out of the rest of this debt. They were the only ones I never shared anything with my friends. Even my roommate at the time, I remember just coming home in a panic and thinking like, you know, shoot, can I even pay the rent this month now? Because I have this garnishment on my checking account. And I'd even tell her, and she could have been in a situation, what if she couldn't do the whole rent? Or what if my parents couldn't help me out that month? Right. You know, it could have been tragic for the both of us. And I, and I didn't share. I didn't think to say, oh, is anyone else going through stuff or anybody else can give me advice? I didn't want to come off as that person. I always still wanted to have this mentality of like, I'm so, you know, not high and mighty, but I'm, you know, the strong person that's doing very well in life and I'm making it. Right. Yeah. Do you it's, think that going on Susie and being so public about it the second time is kind of what helped you get out and stay out? Yes, for sure. 100%. I think it was like the major wake up call that I you know, kind of needed. And I didn't think that it was going to be that way. You know, when I intentionally wrote the show, I didn't think like, oh, this is going to be this big turning point in my life financially. And to be honest, I thought that maybe I would get a little bit of money for being on the show. And that's what I was really hoping for. <laughs> right. But she doesn't pay her guests. I even thought literally when I wrote to the show, I'm thinking, oh, even if they give me $500, that that's going to help me so much, mm-hmm. you know, to pay down a little bit of this debt that I have right now. And they didn't pay me. And so I was kind of like bummed, but she set me up definitely with the tools and they put you in touch with people, you know, outside, you know, as far as like for like debt repayment and all this stuff and classes to learn about different things. And so 
I'm glad that I did go through that, but I was like, I never want to go through this again, especially since I put it on TV now and I can still find the video to this day. You can like search in Google and there's <laughs> even a tweet. There's a tweet from the Susie Orman show that says, Carrie is living a financial lie in the copy. Oh, wow. wow. That's harsh. <laughs> I know. I was like, my God, they're just running me through the dirt right now. But, <laughs> yeah, uh, it's interesting. The viewers. I was just going to say, it's interesting. John and I had a similar kind of experience, not as public as yours, but we paid off our debt. We had been fairly vocal with our friends, telling them that we were paying off our debt. And we paid it off. We had saved up the money and we rewarded ourselves by going on a vacation for John's best friend's honeymoon. But then within a year, we went from having $51,000 in credit card debt to zero. And then within a year of that, we had $6,000 in credit card debt again. And we were like, what the heck happened? And I think that for a lot of people, it's kind of like dieting. You pay off the debt and then you go on this binge of rewarding yourself. You know, you uh -huh. lose 20 pounds, you lose 50 pounds for an event or something like that. And then people go on these binges and they just gain either some or all or more of the weight back. And I think a lot of us do this kind of back and forth, back and forth, back and forth thing with credit card debt until we finally learn it. We uh -huh. learn what it really takes. I think that that's part of the reason why then John and I said, this is teachable. We need to help other people with this. We need to help other people figure out how to get the weight off and keep it off, how to get the debt down and keep it you know, at yeah. zero. Don't give me the side eye while you're talking about weight. <laughs> 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 so this is a great segue into our next question. What couple of steps or changes did we all make that helped us get out of debt for good? some actionable advice that our listeners could take. Carrie, do you want to kick us off? I mean, first, I feel like number one was just changing my whole mindset and thinking, you know, why do I feel certain ways when I would go out and maybe buy things? And when I would see that available credit number go higher, I would just head back to the store and buy something else good. And so I really had to kind of just take a look and to see like what I was really getting from the spending and why my mind was in that way and thinking, why am I seeking, you know, just to have this kind of gratification from that. And so that was one of the first things that I did is kind of just take a step back and see, like, why am I acting the way that I am? And then secondly, I just had to start tracking. I had to use some kind of a software tool to be able to see, okay, before I start making adjustments, like what's coming in, what's going out, what am I really spending excess on? And that's when I started. I mean, it's the same way when you're talking about weight and thinking like tracking your eating and doing all of that and thinking like I have two pieces of bread and this, this, this today, and then I have this many calories left. Right. I would do that, you know what I mean, from a fitness perspective. And so I had to start doing that for my money and just saying like, okay, this is what's really happening. This is what's really going in. This is what's really going out. And then making those adjustments from then. How long did it take until that became habit, became kind of second nature and that's how you live your life? You know, it took a while. I feel like for me, it was, you know, for a good time, I would go like months where I was tracking everything. And then I was still, you know, on par with my spending as far as like not overspending in certain situations. But there were times where, you know, we'd be like, oh, my friends wanted me you to know, do this. Or maybe I wanted to go on, you know, this other vacation that really maybe couldn't afford it. And I kind of found myself saying like, okay, how can I make this work? Can I just decrease my like savings input for this month? you know, and thinking that way. And so I would kind of deviate, but I think maybe even after like a year, I was really kind of good. I would stay consistent for months on end, but there were just little kind of dips in the road. I think maybe at the six month mark and four month mark, even a little bit too. That first month I was like, yes, I'm doing this. And then it was kind of like, oh, okay, I don't really want to track that one. I don't really want to do that. And I was like, no, I got to, you know, everything needs to be down here. I need to see what am I doing, you know, and thinking it's for software that can kind of categorize things or you can go up and do it manually. But 
it took me a little while. It took a little while to kind of just like change that mindset. I think like after it was like the year I started to see the debt go down really and noticing just like my behaviors were changing and sticking to that mindset too. Then it was just kind of second nature. Now it's like, okay, this is just what I do. This is how it's supposed to be. Nice. Right. So David, what couple of piece of advice would you share for those trying to get out? What one or two things did we do? Do you think that helped us get out of debt and stay out? I'm just going to take a second here to echo what Carrie said, that it's mindset first and tracking second. And for any of you who have taken the Debt-Free Guys 7-Day Debt Freedom Challenge on the website, you know exactly why. We walk you through the mindset portion first, and then the idea of, as we like to say, where the fuck does your money go? Yeah. Um, so that is so important to have the mindset first and then to start tracking it. I will say that tracking was probably the number one reason why we stayed on track financially since we paid off our debt the second time. We paid off our debt, I think that was in 2008 or 2009. The reason is because the first and the 15th of the month, you all have heard me say this before, the first and the 15th of the month, I would sit down and I would say, where did we spend? Where are we bringing money in? What's the difference? How are we increasing our investments? How are we putting more money in our 401k? How are we putting money aside for emergency savings? It was having that regular habit of doing it on a regular basis. It just became second nature to me. And I think to me personally, that was the biggest reason that we actually have stayed out of debt for all these years. I think the second one is that we got real with ourselves when it came to how we relate spending to our self-worth and our need to impress other people. We have had the same car since 2007. We don't have a problem with it. We don't have a problem driving down the street in our little red Mini Cooper. We love it. And it's paid for and it's been paid for for years. And we don't have a problem with the fact that we lived in a 1,000 square foot apartment, but we used to have a condo that we sold recently. We decided we didn't want to go down this typical gay debt, gay lifestyle, fabulously broke mentality of our community. We said, these are the things that we want. And if it didn't fall in line with the things that we wanted, we just said we didn't need it. And we didn't care if everybody invites us to go out to a party and we show up in our little Mini Cooper and everybody else has got their BMWs and Mercedes and their fabulous clothes. And we're just like, hey, if you like us, you like us. If you don't, then we don't want to be a part of that lifestyle. So I think that secondary mentality of breaking free from needing to impress is probably one of the other biggest things. That's great. And that's another great segue to the next question is, do gay men struggle more with money than the general population? Do we think that money is more challenging for us because we're gay? Carrie? Well, yeah, you know, it's, I think that, you know, everyone struggles. I think that general population, you know, struggles too. I think we may be struggle in different ways. And I think, you know, just today and all of us sharing our stories and thinking of maybe the reasons, you know, why we do what we do or why we did what we did in the past. So I think that those struggles can be differently, but I think it definitely, it plays a factor, I think, maybe into some of the struggles I think being gay. But I think we all do. I think we all struggle. I think we just struggle in a different way than I think maybe the general population. And I think keeping up with the Joneses, you know, outside of the gay community, but I think in the gay community, it's even more. So I think the Joneses are 
not just Lexus Joneses. It's like Bentley Joneses. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Or at least the perception is that way. And I think the perception of the general population, I think a lot, especially when we're talking about like gay men, I think that it's kind of thinking, oh, maybe they're, you know, these two execs and that they're both these breadwinners and they're together. And so they're making even more money. And so that's why they're living this life. And so I think they probably think that we're all like that. And then even going back to maybe even talking about like, you know, equal pay and everything else with like women and men. And so, you know, obviously there's some truth in that as far as like, you know, women that were making money the same that men were. So he's just thinking if that's the case, that there's two men in one household. And if they are generally making more money than everyone else, then maybe it's that perception and thinking like, oh yeah, they're these fabulous people. And so those of us that aren't living that fabulous life thinking, oh, well, I should be doing this because even in Everyone else that's outside the community thinks like, oh, you guys are so great. So if I just go on these trips and have like, you know, nice bodies, nice house, nice car, a house that's well decorated and, you know, great clothes and go on trips, you know, and just want to live that lifestyle. Yeah, I would agree with that. I sort of feel like the system isn't necessarily designed for anyone to easily achieve. So I think we're all kind of struggling no matter what demographic we're in. I think even the straight white cis man very often struggles because he's trying to keep up with his neighbors or his colleagues from the golf course and all that. So by and large, many of us are struggling and the data supports that. But I think we have a common thread in the gay community in that one, I think we're oftentimes trying to make up for lost time, whether that's because we weren't able to be our authentic selves when we were kids or because, especially in the 80s and 90s, because the age crisis, we knew we weren't going to live beyond 35, 40 years old. So we kind of had that carpe diem effect. But then I also think, as our stories today have shown, we're all seeking some sort of validation that we, for some reason or another, didn't get early enough in our lives or don't feel like we're getting enough today. So I I kind of think there's a common thread amongst gay men and why we struggle financially. But I do think that the system isn't necessarily designed for anybody to necessarily achieve, at least easily. I agree with that. I agree with everything both of you have just said. One of the things that I would kind of maybe add on to that is this mentality in our community that somebody who their age starts with the phonetic sound of you're 40 or you're 50 years old, you are old and you're not worth it. And we might as well just throw you away. There is this mentality in our community that when a gay man reaches the age of 40 or older, that they're worthless. And so we're so desperate when we're young to make sure that we are noticed, or sometimes it just naturally happens. Maybe you are fortunate to have a beautiful body and maybe you're fortunate enough to have, what is it typically appealing in the gay community? You have that great job and you have all those things. But as we age, our community then says to us, you're not worth it anymore. You're not worthy. And when that happens, I think that there's a propensity for gay men especially to uptick their spending to compensate for those feelings of inadequacy because the younger members of our community are no longer attracted to us. We're not fabulous anymore, unless you are uber fabulous, you know, unless you're that couple that, you know, both people drive the Lexus or the Bentleys, or you have that, you know, seven bedroom house for two people and you don't really need it. But when you have those kinds of things, everybody thinks, oh, you're okay. You're you're the A-list or gay and you give $100,000 a year to charities and stuff like that. If you're not that, and you're over 40, then you're worthless, which is, please do not believe that. Do not buy into that mentality. I'm saying that as a man who's in his mid-40s, but it wrecks our community's ability to actually 
be worthwhile and do good things for each other. Exactly. I think nobody said it better than Linda Evans when she said, let's face it, 40 isn't fatal. <laughs> Neither is 50 or 60. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. And that's so, so true. I think about, you know, even when I was younger, even thinking about it and saying like, oh yeah, like if I would think about older guys that were older than me, a lot older than me and thinking they're the ones that's going to have two houses are going to have all of this and they're going to have this great, you know, life. And so that was what was appealing to me. And I think, you know, as men, we're already kind of, you know, visual in the sense. And so if it wasn't, you know, he's not looking pretty like this, but he has all these other things and living this great life, then I would totally be with him. And I had that mentality <laughs> when I was in my 20s. And I was like, I want a daddy right yeah, now. Right. <laughs> I think this is a great conversation. Do we have any then suggestions for ourselves and our community and the listeners on how we can change the definition of a successful gay man, including financial stability or limiting beliefs about ourselves or dismissing our age. I'm just going to kind of give a little bit of an anecdote of, of what happened to us last week. We went to a happy hour. I intentionally on the way to the happy hour, I said to myself, I know that people are going to say, how are things going? What have you guys been up to? And I'm thinking to myself, how do I mentally change the conversation? Because it seems like almost every time we go out to a friend's house or to a happy hour or brunch or whatever the case may be, whenever we meet up with our friends, that typically we're trying to tell each other where we've been on vacation or the newest things we bought or all those kinds of things, the conversation goes to that. We walked into the happy hour and somebody said, how's it going? And John and I had just reached a financial milestone, a certain amount of money that we wanted to have in retirement this past month. And so I said that. I said, things are going really well. We just reached a financial milestone. We achieved a certain amount of money in our retirement and we're really excited about that. And the person that I said it to, I love this person, but I think I probably could have picked their job off the floor because it wasn't something about the lifestyle I was living. It wasn't about travel. It wasn't about other amazing things that are going on in my life. And I think that's one of the things that we have to remember is that Sometimes the things that we do financially in the back of our lives are as important or even more important than the things that we're used to talking about in regular conversation. I think it's a great idea. I yeah, that's a great idea, actually. That's really good. That's so true. Even when you're just having kind of small talk and, you know, meet up with people. And I think, yeah, that's always things you maybe always lead with like, oh, we just did this or we just bought this great new thing or we, yes, or we just came from vacation. I mean, mine definitely has been the vacation since I just, you know, came back from one. If we're doing things like this, if we're sharing experiences, and I think if we're just kind of being, you know, honest about situations and being open to having, you know, conversations with more depth about, you know, who we are as people and how we live our lives, you know, from a financial perspective, I think that would probably change a lot. Because I think a lot of people would maybe find out that, you know, all that shiny that's over there isn't really, you know, shining when it goes home. Right. Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so to think like, oh, so maybe that's not what I should be striving to because maybe that's not really realistic. And so I just think if we had just had those conversations and just being open with people and genuine and in that way, I think maybe we would change a little bit of, you know, this kind of perception or this, you know, desire to want to only, you know, show off me as this like shiny, beautiful purse. You know what I mean? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, and I think I'll, I'll tack on to that as my piece of advice. You know, one of the things that I think David and I did that really helped us out getting out of debt was starting to get real about what it is we most wanted in life and not trying to live up to everybody else's expectations. So I would challenge our community to start, you know, being authentic about what is most important to you. And not every gay man wants to have the latest Prada bag and latest Louis Vuitton shoes. 
if that isn't what makes you happy, then live authentically and then share your authentic happiness with the rest of the gay community and so that they can live authentically as well. And if we can start to be more authentic, maybe we can stop spending our money on superficial things that aren't necessarily making us happy for people we don't necessarily like that much. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I know that Will Smith is credited with this, but I'm not certain if he was the first person to say it. But that saying is, stop buying things you can't afford to impress the people you don't like. And <laughs> we get so sucked into that, right? Yeah, exactly. And I think we That's do in the gay such... community because we're so obsessed with pop culture and TV and movies, right? And you see like RuPaul looking fabulous 24-7. You're like, I want to look like her too. But not everybody has her income or her right. platform. <laughs> right. So let's end on a positive note if we can. Data suggests, as well as experience study shows, that especially gay men, as individuals and as couples, we tend to earn more than the average. What one tip or a couple tips can we share to help improve the lives of our listeners to better spend their money that they're making more than the average? If you don't mind, I'll just kind of take a step back and actually explain the data that John just mentioned. In the study that Experian did, the study showed that 55% of those people who were surveyed were earning $50,000 or more as individuals. So if you combine that into a household income of $100,000, the average household income in the United States is roughly $57,000. So we are, as a community of the individuals that were surveyed, are making as a household income nearly twice the average. Granted, Many of us live in urban cores where it's more expensive and there's oftentimes pay according to that. But we're also comparing ourselves to everyone else who also potentially lives in those urban cores. So as a community, we are making more money. Like you talked about, Carrie, right. you said the two guys, you can afford two houses because they're you know both maybe a manager level or higher. They can afford that. So it's nice to hear that that's actually happening that as a community, some of us are earning more. But what was your question again, John? I just kind of went <laughs> off on the data geeked out there. What one or two ways can we better spend the increased money that we're earning? Yeah. The first thing I think is to just really, you know, be clear and and realizing what your wants are and what your needs are. And I think maybe what will you maybe need in the future instead of maybe living so much for today and spending for so much for now on these, you know, great trips or these, you know, extravagant fun things, or maybe this beautiful ring or whatever it is, this piece of clothing that's going to last me maybe nine months or a year, just thinking, maybe be more conscious of the way that you're spending and thinking, I know what I like and I know what I want now. And I know my life that I have now, but you know, what am I going to want maybe in 10 years or what will I need in 10 years? And am I doing what I'm supposed to do today to be ready for that 10 years from now or 15 years from now, you know? Yeah. You know, that's a really good one to ask yourself that question. What will I need 10 years from now? Because I think so many of us are accustomed to spending all of our money right now, right? And I right. won't have any money for tomorrow. That's kind of the Aesop's fable of the ant and the grasshopper. <laughs> so, um, John, what about you? My suggestion is it's kind of piggybacking off of what both of you have said is if every couple or every individual could adopt one financial habit that they practice a couple times a month, ideally maybe a budget, you know, whether it's an Excel spreadsheet or if it's a tool that you use like Mint or Personal Capital or Honeyify that we've talked about several times on this just start tracking your spending, engaging with it regularly, 
how you're spending your money and what your budget looks like. And I think just you'll sort of naturally start spending your increased income better than maybe you, you had in the past. I love that too. I think what I, I would like add that. is go out and set a financial goal, maybe a six month or 12 month financial goal and socialize that. Tell your friends, tell your parents, tell your partner, especially if you're with somebody, tell your partner that you have this financial goal. And then look at how your everyday spending either adds to or detracts from you being able to achieve that goal. And it kind of starts to help you create those habits, the mental checks that say, I'm going to reach my goal. Because everybody loves it when we reach a goal, right? People champion, that's part of the reason we have competitive sports is everybody likes a winner. So you want your friends, your family, your spouse to perceive you as a winner. So tell them you have a goal and then be the winner. It will change the way you think about your money, especially the way you think about your money on the weekend, because that's when we spend the most <laughs> of it, right? <laughs> yeah. That's a really good one. I think I wish I would have mentioned that as well, too, but that's very good. I think that's what I used to set myself these kind of goals and give like, you know, milestones of when I want to hit certain milestones at certain times. And, but yeah, I think having that goal and socializing it and having conversations with people and talking about that because someone else might have the same goal and maybe you're going to, you know, go at it together and you're both going to see, you know, if we can both hit this at the time that we want, you know, it's just like fitness. I think once you start, you know, you're working out, you're seeing changes in your body and you're like, oh my gosh, look, I'm getting there. I'm seeing changes happen. I think it's the same with your money. I think when you set those goals and you're thinking, what actions do I need to take to hit that goal? And once you're kind of maybe, you know, halfway there, a quarter way, you start to see changes, maybe, you know, your debt's going down and your credit score is going up and just, you're just noticing maybe a change in the way that you're even reacting, you know, to money and to spending and other things like that. And you're like, oh my gosh, look, I'm really doing what I'm supposed to do to really hit this goal. And once you do it, you know, that much sweeter to think like, wow, I put in the work. And then I think that's when it becomes second nature. Because then it's just like, this is my everyday and I can hit these goals and I, all I got to do is set this and boom, I can just start running and go. Yeah, exactly. I love it. That's a great way to end the show. So I'm going to repeat what I've said before. Thank you to Experian. There were actually several people that helped create this study. It wasn't a one-person job. So we want to thank Experian for putting the time, effort, and money into creating this wonderful study that we'll continue to leverage throughout the years. And we want to thank Carrie for coming on our show and kind of adding some personal story behind the numbers. We appreciate your time. Oh, my pleasure, David. John, this was great. I'm so glad to be able to have this conversation with people. And yeah, it was excellent. I had a great time and love that we all have similar stories. That was so much fun. Totally. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. And if we don't see you before, maybe we'll see you at FinCon this year. Yes. All right. I'll see you guys there. See you in September then. Thanks, Carrie. Have a great one. <laughs> all right, Wes. You too. Thank you, Carrie, for coming on our show and sharing your very personal story. We think a lot of our listeners will identify with you and all of our stories. Thanks again to Experian for helping us better understand our community. It's information like yours that helps us better serve the queer community with the financial help it needs. If you, our listeners, like this episode, please take a screenshot on your phone of this episode, share it on Instagram along with your favorite point or quote from today's show, and tag at Queer Money Podcast. Thank you. To learn more about our sponsor, MassMutual, or to find an advisor, visit MassMutual.com. From Los Angeles, California to Winooski, Vermont, we're taking queer money on the road. Join us as we gamify personal finance with Queer Money Bingo or catch our signature Live Fabulously, Not Fabulously Broke Talk and so much more in between. Check out QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player regularly for date and location updates.